are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banditini. Here, I interview brain scientists and discuss their work as well as the latest advancements and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Grace Lindsay, who has recently published an outstanding and impactful popular science book titled Models of the Mind, How Physics, Engineering, and Mathematics Have Shaped Our Understanding of the Brain. Dr. Lindsay received her BS in neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh after spending a year at the Bernstein Center for Computational Neuroscience in Freiburg, Germany, she carried out her PhD thesis work at her at the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at Columbia University in the lab of Ken Miller, where she worked on building models of recurrent visual processing. She is currently a Sainsbury Welcome Center Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit Research Fellow at the University College London, working on building models of sensory processing. Along with her active research, she's a prolific writer and communicator, maintaining a podcast and a blog, writing extensively on the intersection of math, computational models, and the brain. She's found time to do all of this and write her very well-received book. The podcast, this podcast is unique also in that I invited a co-host today, Dr. Brendan Ritchie. Brendan has been leading a book club at the NIH discussing Dr. Lindsay's book every week. Brendan is a postdoc at the Laboratory of Brain and Cognition at the National Institute of Mental Health and has been researching under Chris Baker, the neural basis of visual object categorization. Prior to coming to NIH, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Catholic Universiteit Leuven in Belgium. And prior to that, he completed his PhD at the University of Maryland. In this discussion, we first talk about the entire book writing process, as this is something that many aspire to and really is an elusive skill in itself. So we go into discussing specific ideas put forward in the book as well after this discussion on the process of writing. In the book, we discuss such things as the types of models from simply descriptive to more mechanistic, from too simple to those that are overfitted. We also differentiate between models and more general constructs. We delve into how true understanding requires both data and clear and explanatory models. We go on to describe the challenge in neuroscience of network modeling, how there are so many unknowns and very limited data and how output of the model may help inform its accuracy. We also discuss the challenge of modeling neural activity when we have all the data, such as with the zebrafish. How do we go about that? How do we even begin to penetrate that? even if we had all that data. So we go into specific models also such as deep neural networks, which is her expertise, and how this type of modeling may make any progress in the future. Lastly, Lindsay gives some thoughts on future hopes, philosophies, and strategies of modeling, and how doing it well is both an art and a science. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Okay. Here we are with uh, Grace Lindsay, who uh, wrote uh, Models of Mind, How Physics, Engineering, and Mathematics Have Shaped Our Understanding of the Brain. This is a unique podcast because this is the first time I have a co-interviewer, uh, Brendan Ritchie, who is, as mentioned, in the Laboratory of Brain and Cognition, and uh, he was uh, leading a book club that we were meeting every week, talking about each chapter of, of Grace's book. And it generated tons of discussion and uh, the book, I read it and it was, it was um, I found it really readable and the whole time, and maybe we'll, maybe let's, before I get into the book itself, I mean, the whole time I was actually really impressed with not only your writing, but also the, the extent of your knowledge of the field and to put this all together is, is, is a is huge task, but we'll get into that in a second, but let's just start out. Grace, thanks for agreeing to interview with us. And I know you've been on probably a couple of other podcasts, your book, you know, it's a great thing about writing a popular book and hopefully it's getting more and more popular. Let's just talk a little bit about your history. So what, what motivated you to, to get into this particular field and, you know, were there any key collaborators or mentors that you had? Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. So I, I was interested in neuroscience. I basically decided I wanted to do neuroscience when I was in high school. 
because the brain is just inherently interesting to me. And when I was in college, I chose the university, University of Pittsburgh, that had a neuroscience undergraduate program. And I started doing research um, within my first year there. Um, but I thought that I would be an experimentalist. I thought that I would do um, you know, wet lab work. Uh, and I did. I worked in a mouse lab and a rat lab and um, doing kind of more clinical translational type research. Um, but then I heard a talk um, by Brent Doiron, who was a math professor at uh, Pitt at the time. He's since moved to University of Chicago, but he does computational neuroscience research. And I heard a talk from him and I just found it very satisfying the explanations that he was giving in terms of these mathematical models. They felt like a real mechanism for how the brain works rather than just, you know, in a lab collecting a bunch of data and kind of telling yourself these maybe hand wavy word stories. This was like, no, we can mathematically show, you know, that this was, this is what happens if you connect neurons up in this way and all of that. And so it just felt really satisfying. And that was kind of what got me into doing the computational side of neuroscience. Um, and so I actually ended up doing my undergraduate thesis supervised by Brent and also Tyson Lee, who was at Carnegie Mellon, which is across the street from University of Pittsburgh. Um, and so I did an experiment. I did some experiments on macaques there getting um, recordings from V1 and then some computational analysis of what information those cells were encoding and kind of what form that information took and all of that. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got started in it. Just found it to you know, as I kind of uh, stumbled through the field as an undergrad does, found these methods so satisfying uh, that it seemed like that was the way that I had to go <laughs> to study the brain. Yeah. And your background. So so as an undergraduate, you you studied so more neuroscience, but then, of course, you took a lot of mathematics and, and uh, you know, that or, or maybe not. Maybe maybe you built that up later? Uh, when I decided to make the switch from the more experimental side to computational side, I did have to start taking computer science and mathematics mathematics courses. So that was around the second semester of my sophomore year um, at university. And yeah, when I started, I was intending to be a neuroscience and philosophy double major, um, but I had to drop the philosophy to take all the, the CS and the math that I needed in order to catch up on uh, these methods. It's easier to go, uh, well, maybe I'm biased, but maybe it's easier to go from the the rigorous computational side to philosophy than, than the opposite way. Um, <laughs> yeah, that might be true. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing now, maybe a little bit later, but I just wanted to start out just with the, I mean, I've, I am totally impressed with with as I was reading your book, I was, I was very impressed with not only your writing, I mean, your writing is very, very clear, but I'm just, I just kept on thinking, my gosh, you know, if I were, I mean, I, I tried to write a, you know, I wrote a book uh, on fMRI. It was just a small thing, but um, it was really hard. And, and even though I feel I've been in the field for 30 years and I felt I knew a lot of things off the top of my head, but it, there, there's still a lot of things you have to get right to, to write it. So what was, I mean, I, I'm impressed that, you know, as a postdoc, uh, you wrote this and, and uh, you know, what was your process of, of writing this? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of people in the field sort of aspire, you know, the back of their head, I would like to write a book. I think I'd like to write a book. You know, did you feel like, well, starting with the beginning, like, did you feel there was a gap in understanding or, or access to, to something? And, and then your process of get, getting the literature, organizing it, writing it down, you know, when you wrote during the day or whatever, uh, just walk us through that. Yeah. So I think, I think anyone who works in kind of mathematical approaches to the brain probably realizes that that doesn't have a lot of popular representation. Like you can't explain what you do easily to people. I mean, even saying you're a neuroscientist, sometimes people don't, you know, they're not, that's not like a common word for a lot of people outside of the field. And then to say you're a computational neuroscientist, it's just like meaningless <laughs> for the most part for a lot of people. So I think there was definitely a need to let people know that this is a way, and I think becoming quite a dominant way that we're understanding the brain, because there's plenty of books about the brain. People want to understand how the brain works. And in a way they weren't being given the opportunity, like the general public wasn't being given the opportunity to understand the mathematical approaches to the brain. Um, because even, you know, sometimes in books that are mostly about experiments and biology, 
they might throw in like a line and then a computational model was built that verified these results or something like that and like that's just meaningless to the reader so i wanted to actually expose you know what is this whole approach where does it come from why do we think it's reasonable how does it work what how has it been useful all of that um so that was kind of the motivation and then yeah i um so when you write a nonfiction book you know you have to uh, submit a book proposal before you actually get the contract and then once you get the contract you start writing the book versus for fiction books you write the book and then you try to sell it um so doing that proposal you have to come up with the table of contents and you know the general structure of the book and kind of the target audience and all of that and that's just really helpful work to do beforehand yeah. um yeah so i put a fair amount of effort into picking um, a, a way of organizing the book that I thought would actually work. Um, because I think if you start writing the book and then realize you need to reorganize it partway through, that's recipe for panic. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I wanted to basically cover kind of the true breadth that the field has, because if you go to like a computational neuroscience conference, you can see things from single cell modeling all the way up to modeling of behavior. And so I wanted to encompass all of that in the book. And so it made sense to just have chapters that were separately devoted to kind of separate topics. And I organized them from the small scale to the large scale, partly because, um, you know, the later stuff, you need to have a basic understanding of how a neuron works. So it's easy to just start with the chapter that explains mathematical models of neurons, because then you lay that foundation for uh, later chapters. So that was kind of the broad organization. I looked at the tables of contents of computational neuroscience textbooks. I looked at conferences on computational neuroscience to make sure that I was kind of capturing all the different types of modeling that are represented in the field as best as I could. I mean, you also have to choose topic areas that have enough meat to them that they can be a full chapter and that have enough kind of interesting stories on the biology side and on the math and physics side or whatever other kind of quantitative field um, the modeling is pulling from because each chapter is kind of a narrative of how these two sides came together and what they produced and all of that. So that went into deciding what to include, you know, is it going to be interesting enough? Is it going to be worth it to explain all these details? Or like, will it pay off? Will it hold together as a story and all of that? There are a lot of considerations that went into it, but I think ultimately it's just kind of the chapters represent the main topic areas in the field and having it divided up where the chapters are more or less kind of standalone stories that could be read on their own, as long as you have like decent prerequisite knowledge of like how a neuron works, which comes earlier in the book, that made it easier to write because I could really, like once I finished one chapter, I could just let it go <laughs> from my mind entirely and just move on to the next one. That was kind of how I did it. I really tried to keep to a timeline of, you know, finishing this chapter by this date and moving on to the next one and worrying about editing it later. You know, you just get the first draft and you move on. And I found also that because there is so much historical research in it and I was trying to kind of piece together these narratives, I couldn't, you know, some people have the advice of like, oh, if you just wake up and write for an hour every morning, like before you know it, you'll have written a book. And that didn't work for me because <laughs> I needed to be like, living in the material to like keep it all in my mind and all of that. So I would have to do it for like, you know, chunks of days at a time, you know, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday kind of thing, um, which as a postdoc, especially as a computational postdoc, you have some flexibility in yeah. when you're doing your work. And, um, you know, I didn't have teaching responsibilities or anything like that. So it's not a bad time to have to create these chunks of days where you can just live in the research. So yeah, that's kind of how it all came together. Um, I think I think the structure of the book made it a tractable project uh, for someone at my stage. That was um, that was one of my hypotheses about your uh, about the book in terms of the writing was that um, it has a nice modularity in terms of, of how each chapter has a kind of self-contained focus. There's some cross reference in the chapters, and of course, as you say, sort of builds up from uh, the single cell stuff uh, throughout the book. And then the other thing that I'd wonder about is that you, I think you had a comment in the the first chapter or something like that, which is that the you weren't trying to build towards some sort of overarching picture like you know and now that we've surveyed the brain you know this is my my frame my theory about how neuroscience modeling works or something like that in in that respect you kind of let the um the topics and kind of the modeling speak for itself yeah and i think again i think that reflects the field like <laughs> we have these not even competing models sometimes competing if they're trying to explain the same thing but just 
parallel different models tackling different research questions and that's fine you know we don't have to come to some cohesive full brain model at the end you know different people are are working on their own research problems and yeah i also the book is not first person there's no i in the book it's not my view on it i tried to truly just kind of objectively represent the field because there are some books that tackle kind of mathematical approaches to the brain that are very much about the authors and their particular theories about how the brain works and i feel like putting something like that out there when there isn't a generic introduction to the field is a little dangerous because it's like people if they want to understand you know how can we mathematically model the brain their only option is to read a book that's by someone who has a very particular theory on it they don't get to sample like the actual full range of thoughts that people have about how to mathematically model the brain so i wanted to make it so that it was really like no if you just want to know about how people are doing this this is how people are doing it don't worry about like my personal <laughs> preferences for you know how it should be done so even like the very mundane stuff like this is thing these are things i stumbled over when i was trying to write it's like do you put it all in microsoft word or do you uh you know <laughs> i mean how do you like you know uh, do you use endnote or or i mean these are things that are sort of like they they don't scale with a book as much uh and i'm kind of curious i'm just curious my own maybe it's my own curiosity so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no uh um i use google docs and i had a separate file for notes on research for each chapter and then a separate file for the actual chapter itself and for me anything more complicated than like a basic text document i'll stop using correctly and i'll end up just opening a text document and dumping things into it and then i just have two systems and that's worse so <laughs> i knew from the start that i had to use something simple but google docs was nice because you can put images into it you can put links you can comment on it uh, all of that kind of stuff and so that it ended up being fine and a lot of just like oh what was that reference that talked about that thing you can just like control f for the word you're thinking of in your notes file and you know it ended up working all right yeah the one thing i i find about google docs though is that um the the the, the citation managers don't are don't play oh well. yeah 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 no that was yeah, that was i just had links to things and then at the end used a separate uh citation okay. maker okay yeah. yeah enough of the enough of the mundane uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> um but i think i think a lot of people actually would be very curious about that so but i did think i did wonder uh like after now you've written the book is there do you think that there's any topics you left out and also what the feedback was uh you know did did you actually do you iterate did you send people copies and 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 now that it's out where people are like oh well you didn't you didn't quite represent this well or or this is a great job or you left out this point or you know whatever i, I i'm kind of curious what if there's anything you left you feel you left out or other or what the feedback was when i was writing it i sent it i sent individual chapters to um i'm part of a, a writing group it's uh, specifically science writers so i sent it to them and they have backgrounds in all different fields and so that was helpful for kind of clarity and making sure it's interesting like they all do popular science writing so they know how to workshop that kind of stuff um, and then I also sent each chapter to a specific kind of expert reader that I wanted to, you know, as more of a fact checking kind of thing. Like, am I saying any here, anything here that's just glaringly wrong based on your knowledge of the field? Though even those people, I kind of tried to select not completely for like absolute expertise, but also people who have some eye towards public communication or understand that the goals are different than a scientific communication. Yeah. Um, because you don't want people who are like so nitpicky, like they're doing peer review in, in that kind of sense where, you know, oh, you didn't reference this thing. It's like, well, the general reader doesn't need to know that. Um, but I did still try to send it out to, to people who were experts in the sub areas um, for, for to like look it over. Since it's come out, the feedback from people in the field has been, I think, you know, like I haven't heard any like major complaints like, oh, this is completely wrong. Or um, I mean, everyone has their kind of little pet details that they would have liked included or something like that, but nothing glaringly wrong from people in the field. And most people just like appreciated getting to read a history because we don't have a collected history of, of computational neuroscience and, and the approaches and kind of how they all fit together like that. For general readers, I've gotten like very opposite criticisms, <laughs> which maybe cancel each other out. Like, oh, this was way too complicated. I couldn't understand it versus like, this is like so rudimentary and simple. Like this doesn't like even explain the models. It's just <laughs> biographies of scientists or something. <laughs> and so just like complete opposite kind of critiques. So I think some people, um, you see a topic that's about something mathematical and you expect it to kind of be a textbook. 
And so when it wasn't a textbook, they were like, what, what is this? I don't understand the genre. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, some other people, I guess, maybe uh, because it doesn't contain, you know, mathematical concepts and a lot of different, you know, ideas because of the the different chapters and stuff, it felt like a lot to to, to some people as well. So went both ways. <laughs> okay, great, great. Yeah, no, actually, so might as, might as well get right into the book itself. But but yeah, no, that's fascinating in itself because um, I did really appreciate, both Brendan and I really appreciated the historical details. You know, it's great sort of setting things up, but it's also really nice, you know, some of the anecdotes that you wrote in there. Um, you know, I don't know, Brendan, if you can think of any, but there's one, uh, was it like coming up with GABA? I mean, this, uh, who oh, was it? is it the book? The guy was he, he just kept going to like the, like the fish market or something like that, or like the, uh, the horse butcher, the horse, the horse butcher, butcher. Horse and yeah. cow butcher. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously they don't need to like sell the nervous systems yeah. of the animals. So, and uh, then they were, and then we're basically re- rendering brains or something like that. And then seeing what they got out at the, at the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> To, to, yeah, to eventually find uh, GABA and show that it's inhibitory. Yeah. Just to, this, on that, I mean, it's something I wondered about um, is like, both in terms of like the motivations you had for the historical detail, um, uh, what you what motivated you to include it, but then also like, did you have, like there's um, history of science is difficult because it's often sort of like a bit anachronistic. Like, I mean, and this is something that comes up in the, you know, even within the field of history of science. And so, uh, did you worry about like sort of trying to strike a balance between how much was sort of like as it were settled history and how much was kind of like we'll say sort of more like uh not fictional history but just like just trying to sort of draw connections to sort of make so sort of that people sort of at least saw some continuity between ideas even if those historical connections were are not as sort of like uh, uh, solidly established yet, I guess. Yeah. So I think part of the reason I wanted to include the histories is one, because I think personally as a scientist, it's useful to kind of see how ideas progress and how different scientists, especially for this, the theme of this book, how scientists from different fields interact Mm. and how that can lead to fun and interesting things. Um, So I think it's just valuable information to have out there, but also it, it structures that each chapter as a narrative, which obviously just makes it flow. It makes you want to keep reading it. It makes you it like raises a question that then gets answered, you know, ideally. Um, uh, so it's just, it's, a, I mean, I don't have to explain that narrative is interesting to people, <laughs> you know, it's how people write stories. Um, so that was another big part of it. And I tried to not, I tried to not kind of push connections that I didn't think there was support for. And what that means is that some chapters have a much stronger narrative than others. Like uh, the chapter on the history of artificial neural networks just happens to have a lot of very kind of dramatic players and uh, these like tensions and these kind of clear connections through how the research progressed and all of that. Um, And other chapters, it's more like the thread is the research question. And I maybe can't say how this person came to that question or how they built on the person I just talked about before, but you can see that they've made progress on the question. And so I don't have to try to push a a historical narrative that isn't there. I can just say they're also tackling this question and it turns (laughs) out that they've made progress. So that's how we're going to move the narrative forward. There's some components where it's like this person said in their, in an interview or something that this is how it went down. That's not to say that it's totally <laughs> fact-checked from every direction, but I can tell you that this is one person's perspective, yeah. you know, on, on how it went down. But yeah, it is tricky, especially like I don't have training as a historian of science. I had to just kind of read some of the journals from that field and um, read autobiographies and read biographies and that kind of thing and just, you know, take bits that, yeah, kind of hopefully are just factual statements presented in an order <laughs> where there's a narrative, but again, not trying to, to push it if it's not really there. All right. So let's maybe we'll go into some questions about, um, you know, I actually, there's, there's certain things that I actually uh, felt were insightful that, that I learned from the book uh, that at least, at least I gained a, a better appreciation or a clarification. And, and that is, you know, the, the, the style of modeling. I mean, it, it's nice that you go from action potential modeling, which is, you know, you start with sort of setting up this difference between, you know, description versus mechanistic modeling, where you, you're, you're carrying out the action potential based on an understanding of the mechanisms. And it seems that that's an, a constant issue even today, especially, you know, now with neural network modeling, you, you have, uh, you, you're sort of trying to iterate. I mean, there's only there's a limit to what you can measure. And, uh, and then you sort of have to go between 
uh, sort of modeling it, you know, from the bottom up or from the top down and trying to figure out what and iterating between that and in, in that sense. And so it seems that there's a, there's a distinction and even today, right. Uh, between uh, uh, descriptive, descriptive and sort of mechanistic models, what spatial scale. So, I, so I'm, I, you know, I do fMRI uh, and, and I'm constantly confronted with this thought because I really care about understanding the brain and, and I'm constantly confronted with this thought of like, we're, we're, we're generally low resolution, even though it's highest imaging resolution for humans, but we're generally slow and low resolution. And I'm always wondering if, you know, this spatial and temporal scale is useful. I mean, for, for, I mean, certainly it's useful on one scale, but for actually understanding the brain um, and actually looking at mechanisms of, you know, even neural networks as they're described by fMRI, you know, there's many different spatial and temporal scales that go all the way down that you can measure more and more detail, but then you lose the the spatial connections uh, in, in that sense, the simultaneity of measurement. So I guess my question is, uh, and maybe this is beginning another line of questioning, but is there a, what do you feel uh, after writing this, um, uh, you know, of the hope for either neuroimaging or is there a sort of a, a bias towards, you know, the, the more detailed measurements of single neurons? Where do you think is the sweet spot of understanding the brain, the principles? Where do you think they'll, they most reside uh, in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately um, it's going to vary by research question and brain area and all of those kinds of things. I don't think that you can really say a priori, you know, oh, we just need to get this level of resolution and then we'll be able to understand anything we want. I mean, some things are going to depend on the you know, specifics of the uh, neurotransmitter receptors and, you know, it can go down to that level. My working level as a researcher has always been kind of individual neuron spiking or not even spiking firing rate data. That's kind of the base level that I think of as containing enough information that you can get a lot done with it. Um, and um, things that go too far beyond that, I think, yeah, do lose power for a lot of the things that we want to understand. I mean, this kind of relates actually to in, in the book, the information theory chapter of like, what is the neural code? What do you need to know about a neuron to know what information it's carrying and processing and all of that? Um, and it, yeah, as I said, it is an empirical question that's going to vary um, depending on what you're trying to understand about the brain. And also, even if you believe that patterns of individual neuron firing, which is kind of what I think of is important. You know, you don't just want to know one neuron's firing, right? You want to know kind of the population uh, of neurons in, in a brain region. You want to know all of their firing rates because it's those relative patterns that carry the information in, in a lot of systems, it seems. Even if that's what you ultimately want to know, given limited experimental technologies, you know, you kind of have to triangulate to that using other methods like recording from only a small number of individual neurons and hoping that they're representative of the population. Or if you want to, you know, it's also important to be able to get uh, data from multiple brain areas at once. And so then maybe you do have to use something that's more like, you know, even in uh, animals, like uh, they have like brain-wide calcium imaging in mice now, that's still not like exactly the same resolution, but then you get the benefit of multiple brain areas like an fMRI. So ideally we would be able to record, I think, at least firing rate data kind of from all neurons in all brain regions at once. Um, but given that that seems pretty far off, uh, at least for any more complicated animal than like C. elegans and zebrafish and stuff, then, you know, you have to make do in a way with, with what you have. But I do think that acknowledging the limitations of, of each approach is pretty important and not just saying like, this is what I've got. So therefore it's good enough. And I'm just going to like squeeze whatever understanding out of it that I can. Um, you have to kind of triangulate from multiple data sources. Um, so along those lines though, so let's, let's just back, let's just flip it and, and, and you know, mentioning you mentioned sea elegans or, or the zebrafish, so that that's pretty complete. Uh, it seems that there is all the information there, and I was actually kind of surprised a little bit so far. With um, it's so much information that that I think the the first thing that people are doing with it is just doing you know ICA on the time series, and and, and it seems I mean there are dimensionality reduction techniques that. You know, and the question is, how do you even, let's say, okay, you have this perfect information. What do you do? Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, where does the modeling begin uh, to understand this? I mean, I face this in my own research because I do use um, artificial neural networks that are trained. And so because they're trained, you know, I didn't build them. I don't know the intricacies of how they're accomplishing what they're doing, but I do have perfect access to them. 
um, for recording and manipulation. And yeah, <laughs> that's the question is what do you do with them? But I think, again, it's just, you have to have for any experiment, you have to have a very specific thing that you're trying to answer with it. So if someone just like, Oh, here's all the neural activity of a zebrafish over some period of time, like analyze it. Like that's not, right. it's not a well-posed problem. <laughs> it's right. what did you want to know about the zebrafish? And sometimes it's like, well, I don't really care about zebrafish. I want to know about humans, but this is the only animal I could get the recordings from. And then I think that's kind of a problem. So I am a fan of the kind of renewed interest in ethologically relevant behavior and thinking about an animal in terms of its context and studying um, behaviors that are natural to it, because I do think that will give you a better shot of getting at some real finding about um, that animal's neural activity and how it's achieving its behavior, um, kind of like the carving nature at its joints kind of thing versus forcing a mouse to do an, a really unrealistic task for it and trying to understand how its brain does it. That's probably not the most productive way to study how neural circuits work. You just have to accept that you're going to get an answer for how a zebrafish turns left <laughs> um, when it gets a certain stimulus that would cause it to do that in its natural setting. Um, and you're going to understand, potentially you can understand that system very well through having that kind of data. Um, and then you're going to have to decide if those principles extrapolate to other systems. But yeah, the exact thing you do with the neural data, I mean, dimensionality reduction makes sense just because you can't just look at <laughs> thousands yeah. and thousands of neurons. So you have to do something like that. But we don't even know the right way to do the dimensionality reduction because that involves assumptions about kind of what downstream neurons care about in the population and all of that. So it just, it is all just very domain specific, I think. And you need to combine the activity data with some understanding of anatomy and the goals of the animal and, and all of that. So it's just, it's still hard. <laughs> the data limitation, though a huge limitation in neuroscience is not the only limitation. Yeah. And, and it sort of emphasizes the whole idea that that it's um, the data mean nothing without a model, uh, without actually, mo and models are only as good as you know the hypothesis that you know the framework that you set it up with, and and then you start to, to test these models in that in that regard. And so, so yeah, so there's this iteration with, with trying to create the models in that regard. And I think right, I mean as you mentioned, we're doing this with you know across all different types of data types with human and it's incomplete. And I, and, and I, at least I'm hopeful in the sense that my feeling is that, you know, even with in 1800s, when, when Darwin came up with uh, natural selection, I mean, he didn't have to characterize all the life. He just, you know, had certain specific hypotheses and he saw some experiments and, and results and had this, had this construct uh, and had this theory that helped frame everything in the future. The issue of of partial sort of scales and incompleteness that you're talking about is very interesting to me because uh, that was definitely something that sort of struck me that kind of varied across the chapters. I mean, in some cases, like the action potential, we know quite a lot about about sort of the the modeling uh, of the action potential in its form, as well as the the cellular mechanisms that are involved, modulating the, the concentration gradients um, of things like potassium and stuff like that across. I think it's potassium across uh, inside and outside the cell membrane, and of course, and then other domains that you touch on like decision-making, vision, memory. Uh, we have like a much more fragmentary understanding in the, in the models. And that was something like uh, I was wondering about is, yeah, did you think much about like how the, across these topics there's that your modeling often operates in the situation where we only have like an incomplete story and that that's, it's a sort of this interesting vague thicket at the sort of bleeding edge of science where, you know, it's, it's often, you know, we look back at the action potential, we think oh, it works, makes so much sense, but in many topics that we're currently uh, uh, working on that the um, it's, it's, it's much harder to sort of sort of see how the modeling kind of is like cleanly fitting to the, the facts that we have available to us. Yeah. There's kind of like action potential envy and other yeah. fields, um, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, it's related to the fact that the models of the action potential are closer to just biophysics. It's yeah. acknowledging that the neuron is a physical system. It follows the same rules that electrical circuits do. And then you can make a model. Now, if you really care about um, action potentials and about voltage traces in neurons and all of that, the standard model of the action potential, the Hodgkin-Huxley model is still like woefully incomplete yeah. for yeah. actually predicting everything about, you know, how a neuron's uh, membrane voltage is going to change. So 
even to like look at the action potential in like a wistful way of like, oh, if only we could have that for everything else, um, you know, it, that even, even itself is not complete. I think ultimately, if we really understood the brain, we'd be able to start with something like Hodgkin-Huxley models of action potentials and how neurons interact and create this whole biophysically real uh, model of the brain that produces complex behavior. But you don't need to do that from the onset. You can abstract away. And so the way that mathematical modeling comes into play at uh, more kind of medium scale uh, questions is through analogy to physical models, not actually thinking of the physical you know, implementation of the brain, but like in the Hopfield network of memory modeling, you're saying neurons can interact in a way that's similar to the way that particles in a magnet interact. And that's an analogy. It's not saying that there's magnetism at play in, in the neurons. Um, but I don't see, I like to some extent, I understand that that's incomplete, but I don't see it as a problem because part of the point of doing this kind of modeling is to simplify things away and think about kind of the root problem that you're interested in, knowing that it could be implemented in real biophysically detailed neurons. Um, if you make the kind of right assumptions and stuff, I, I don't see it as a problem. You know, anywhere that we're doing modeling, it's because we don't understand the system yet. So there's incomplete information and there's open questions, but that's just science. <laughs> so if you waited until you had all the information before you started building a model, you could never build a model and you'd have a hard time knowing what information to gather because you wouldn't have a model to guide you in thinking about what's important for the system to work. Um, so yeah, the fact that some areas feel less complete, I think is just a reflection of the kind of greater difficulty of the problem they're trying to solve. Decision-making mm -hmm. is like a brain-wide thing. So mm -hmm. we can't expect to have the Hodgkin-Huxley model of decision-making mm -hmm. because that's just trying to explain one little neuron <laughs> and mm -hmm. using you know the basics of physics to do it. We need to kind of have these intermediate concepts um, and they're going to be a little bit fuzzier uh, to create things like decision-making or perception models. So so right, there's, there's also uh, the idea of, of having... You know, hitting that sweet spot of of having models that are too simple that don't really explain much versus too complex that fit perfectly but but don't really also don't explain that much because they're overfitting in that regard. So there's always this, you know, I guess I guess one thing to cut that that I felt came away from your book as well is that modeling, uh, you know, certainly it's a science and you generate hypothesis, but there's a certain art to it. I, I feel that. That you're you're trying to take your information, you come up with ideas about what might be interesting, and 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 then or might what what might be a mechanism explaining them, and then you sort of test it by the output of the model, and then you test it by you know looking at the system itself. But I think that's getting harder and harder because now we have uh, you know less of the Hodgkin-Huxley sort of you know, you know very simple sort of mechanisms. You have networks. And, and networks are, are, it's sort of like an inverse problem in some sense. You can come up with many similar solutions in behavior uh, and, and activity with, uh, with maybe different uh, constructs. And we don't know exactly how necessary certain constructs are. Like just as the other day, I was talking with a friend of mine um, who uh, uh, is trying to model the brain as well. And, and he seems to think, and well, maybe this would be perfect uh, foray into deep neural networks, but he's like, well, cerebellum maybe, visual cortex maybe, but you know, I think the you know cortex is a shallow associative net, and you know it has attractor states, and and it's sort of like these intuitions, uh, and 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 then then what do you go? Where do you go from there? So you try to you know produce behavior, you, you have learning maybe, and so I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are regarding maybe let's get into the deep neural network since that's your expertise as well. How do you even come up with you know saying okay, I like you know deep neural networks, they work. They're similar in some sense to what we understand the brain to do. And many, there's some evidence, but how do you, how do you carry that forward? Yeah. So the main benefit of using trained artificial neural networks to me is that they can actually perform the tasks that we're interested in. So when I came to um, computational neuroscience, like I said, I was kind of impressed that people were offering a mechanistic understanding of how a system works. And one of the early studies that I read that really felt that way to me was the uh, Romo, Machins, and Brody paper that was in science in like 2000 something. But it uses a line attractor to explain this memory, working memory task where the animal has to compare two sensory inputs. So it has to like take one in, hold it, 
take another one in like a second later and compare it to the um, held memory and then produce an output based on that. And they provided this nice mechanism using um, attractor models of how a network can do that. And so that was like, okay, we're explaining like behavior with how neurons interact. Like that's crazy. <laughs> it's like, that's what yeah. I thought was so cool. Yeah. Um, and so that's also what artificial neural networks get you, but you can do it with much more complex inputs, high dimensional inputs, much more complex computations that these networks can do. Um, so, you know, in that line attractor model, the input is a single value. It's one dimensional representing a complex sensory stimulus, but it's one dimensional in the model to the, uh, in the input to the model. Whereas you can actually put, you know, a real image into a, a neural network. You can put a real uh, sound clip into an artificial neural network and have it work on that. And so that's what really draws me to them because I worry that when you build these small neural circuits that can solve these abstracted problems, that you're missing a lot of the real challenge of what the brain has to do. And so I think it's good that people are being pushed in the direction of thinking about real world complexity and how an animal would have to face that and what kind of principles the brain would have to use, because that kind of scale while you know you can still be guided by intuitions like attractors and these kind of low dimensional simple processing mechanisms you have to understand how they're implemented at scale and that could be kind of lead you to almost qualitatively different ways of understanding the brain like that increase in complexity could lead to mechanisms that you just wouldn't have gotten to if you only studied these simple toy problems so that's why I like them. Yeah. And then the issue, though, is that as people kind of talk about it as the black box problem is that you've trained an artificial neural network to do that task and you've constrained it to kind of be brain like in whatever way you can in terms of maybe putting a certain architecture into it and making sure that the task is an ethologically relevant one and all of that. But in the end, you have a model that you don't really know how it works, quote unquote, you end up with this model that can do these interesting tasks. But as people criticize them for, they're kind of a black box in the sense that you don't understand how they work in any useful way. Like, again, you know all the connections between all the neurons, but that's not the kind of intuitive sense of how that we're trying to get out of understanding the brain. But I think that you know, because they are these networks that can do these tasks and we have full access to them, one thing that's useful about them is that we can then test out what understanding looks like. We can try analysis methods and we can see if we get to a, some type of understanding on these networks that lets us, you know, control them intuitively, predict what they're going to do in an intuitive way. Um, and then, you know, once we for fine methods on the networks, we can apply that to real neural data because you don't have the excuse in the network that you just don't have enough data to do what you want to do. Um, so I think one good thing about them is this uh, this you know test bed for our tools, and also I mean you can just by you know varying different ways about how they learn or how they're structured, um, you can get insights into some principles into how different brain areas might work because certain ways of building the model will give you a better match to neural data than others. And that's just a very clear test in my mind of kind of how good is the model? Can it predict how real neurons will respond to the same circumstance and literally the same circumstance because you can show the models the same stimuli that you show um, the animals. And so I think that those those aspects of them, I'm I'm happy that they are making kind of a comeback in neuroscience now when they can do these really interesting tasks. Um, I I don't want them to be the only modeling that people use, <laughs> and sometimes it feels like that's the direction things are going in. I think there's still a lot of utility in uh, kind of lower scale models of understanding how individual neurons interact, and you know because eventually we do want to be able to say how this is all implemented in these biophysical neurons. You know you have to understand how spiking comes into play, and that's not usually in these networks. You have to understand all the neurotransmitters and how they work, and some of those details will actually be relevant for making the networks work well and make them work the way the brain does. So you can't just abstract away those details and think that you're going to be able to come to a perfect model. Um, but it's about kind of knowing which details are important when, uh, which is like the art of it, as you were saying. Uh, jumping off of that. So you have people don't know who are listening that you have a really nice review paper in journal of cognitive neuroscience on the use of convolutional neural networks in the study of, of vision or human vision or mammalian vision. And you're also a uh, uh, an nth author will say on this uh, large influential paper, a deep learning framework for neuroscience that was, I think the senior author was Blake Richards. And in that paper, 
it's kind of uh, trying to provide a, 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 a sort of a, a, a big picture perspective about some of the sorts of uh, ideas that are feature heavily in neural network sort of design and training stuff like having objective function, a learning rule, the architecture and how these ideas should be imported and how we do things in neuroscience. And um, on a sort of other hand, uh, I, I read a tweet the other day by Bert Hong, a computer scientist at uh, Tufts, who made a comparison between uh, parameter optimization and crystallology. And he says the only stuff that actually works is downloading something else is trained after trying all the crystal settings. And so um, I'm very sympathetic to everything that you just said about the utility of having this complex system that one can sort of probe and engage with. On the other hand, uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the development of the networks is coming from people who are coming from uh, a more like an engineering perspective or, or a computer vision perspective, where the sort of goals and norms are different than in neuroscience, where we have something, as you say, like understanding or or, or explanation. Do you ever worry about there being sort of a bit of like a tension between, you know, using tools which are coming from with a different sort of like, we'll say epistemic sort of norms and goals uh, than, uh, than in neuroscience and whether or not, you know, if there's limits to sort of how, uh, in the, uh, like maybe that we need sort of a neuroscience perspective for how we think about deep learning as well, for instance. Yeah, I think they definitely have just different goals and we can accept that and neuroscientists shouldn't be chasing after what the engineers are doing who are trying to just like, you know, squeeze out that last little bit of performance that they can try to get out of their networks by, you know, putting the settings just right. You know, in the in um, the review you're talking about, I'm talking about the history of convolutional neural networks and how they do have inspiration from mm -hmm. biological visual systems. It's the case that today there are other architectures that people in machine learning use for vision, like transformers or capsule yeah. networks and things that people on the engineering side have claimed, oh, these are better, we should use these. That doesn't mean that the neuroscientists should run after those and yeah. say, these are now the model of how the brain works. I mean, maybe they should look into them and do some comparisons because maybe our previous models were, were wrong and these actually have gotten something more right about the brain. But it is important that neuroscientists keep their goals in mind of we're trying mm -hmm. to understand the brain. So let's really keep ourselves tied to behavior that's actually produced by animals that we're interested in studying, mm -hmm. architectures and biological details that come from that. It doesn't really matter what's happening on the engineering side, yeah. except for the fact that they, you know, help produce uh, faster GPUs, which will make us <laughs> able to train our yeah. networks better. Um, so there is a synergy there. And right now, a lot of people on the engineering side at least have a passing interest in kind of yeah. what neuroscientists are talking about to see if they can put it into their models. But yeah, they're just, they're separate and that's okay, I think. I think it's fine mm -hmm. for people to have that interaction, but knowing that they have separate goals uh, yeah. and, and restraining themselves to only work towards their goals and not get it kind of confused. Yeah. And I mean, there are interesting, I mean, I think interesting example of a network that is more in the explanatory direction. So there's CoreNet, which was developed in Jim DiCarlo's lab by uh, Jonas Kabilius and other people, which is, has four layers. It's a shallow recurrent network, which was somewhat explicitly designed to try and mimic, I guess it's V1, V2, V4, and IT of the monkey brain, where at least in terms of like the architecture component was emphasized in the, the, the Richards paper. You know, there the, the, uh, there's at least a, a attempt to have some sort of superficial connection in terms of the depth to like the monkey visual system, at least. I think what you say is also very interesting about not ch trying to chase after uh, what the engineers are doing, because I definitely think that at least in the vision science context, where there's a lot of popularity now about exp uh, uh, playing around with neural networks, both in terms of their correspondence to brain activity, or even just comparing them to things like, you know, do they see visual illusions and things like this, is that there's a bit of like a professional pressure to be like, oh, well, uh, to tr try and make these comparisons to whatever new architecture is being developed more on the, the engineering or the industry side of things. Yeah. And I don't think that that's going to be super fruitful because they are also um, part of what makes a model popular in machine learning is how easily trainable it is. And that we know that the training that these networks use backpropagation is far enough removed from the way that the brain learns that what makes a good model for that form of training is going to be different than what makes a good brain model. Like for example, having a lot of recurrence in an artificial neural network can make it hard to train. And so that's why these kind of feed forward alternatives um, that are very um, powerful have kind of taken over from recurrent modeling on the engineering side because they're easier to train. Um, but the brain has a lot of recurrence. <laughs> you can argue all you want about how good these feed forward models do they're not 
capturing a big part of um, the architecture of the brain. And so, yeah, the, the incentives and the also kind of just the local incentives, like it could be the case that in a few years from now, either due to increased computational resources or better training algorithms, you won't need to restrict yourself to these kinds of architectures that are easy to train right now. And so even engineering isn't working towards like a stable goal, whereas Hopefully in neuroscience, we're working towards some sort of stable goal of understanding the brain. Right. I mean, the whole idea of ease of training versus versus uh, similarity to what's going on neuronally. So so I'm I'm actually curious about that. So so as, as far as so even trying to uh, so you mentioned these different sort of network models. And so I guess the question, uh, you know, once again, you try to iterate up from having like for instance, backpropagation is something that's been difficult to sort of describe biologically. And also, you know, in, you know, human brain, we, we, we do sort of like one shot learning. That's, you know, pretty much hard to do uh, in these, in these artificial networks. And, you know, yeah, it, it does seem like, like you just have to sort of, you know, be creative and sort of coming up with some sort of solutions in between. And obviously there might be different systems for different processes where we're having an error makes is life or death. And in some cases where it doesn't make a big difference in other cases, there might be entirely different systems. So this kind of naturally leads me to sort of the last part of what I was thinking about. And that is, you know, the, you know, not only Bayesian processes, but but this whole idea of, and you, you talk, you have a great, you know, the whole uh, uh, grand unified theories of the brain. At the very end, you, you mentioned, you know, minimizing surprise sort of construct. And I'm still trying to get my head around the difference between a construct, because you can still sort of test that in sort of a hypothesis versus a, a model. Because I, I really like the idea. I mean, in general, you know, when you, when you uh, read, uh, uh, for instance, um, minimizing surprise sort of sort of model. Uh, it, it sort of makes sense. It's like, that's kind of, it kind of explains everything, but maybe explains nothing. Uh, it, it, but it sets everything in a framework that one could then build models within that. I'm, not, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, this distinction between kind of a framework and so there's kind of like theory, framework, model, um, you know, these are things that all used um, a little bit interchangeably, but actually quite differently. And this is something that I've, you know, only in like the past few years really came to appreciate the distinction between how these words could be used. Um, I think, yeah, a framework. So in that um, uh, that paper that uh, you referenced earlier, where I'm uh, one of many, many authors, um, it is a deep learning framework for neuroscience. It's not a deep learning theory. It's not a deep learning model. It's a framework because it's just a way to organize your thoughts about the system. And so in that case, it's like, well, you should think about the objective function this brain area is kind of trained for, like, what is it trying to do and what architecture does it use and what learning role does it use to implement that and all of that. Um, and so that's just a way to organize the questions that you ask about the system. And so that's what I would say a framework is. I would say a theory is probably something more specific that actually does put forth an idea of what the answers to those questions are. But then a model is what would realize a theory for a specific circumstance. Like you actually build it and can compare it and it's taking inspiration from kind of the broad description that a theory gives. So that's one way to like think about these different concepts. I think, yeah, so when people claim to have grand unified theories of the brain, if you actually are putting a framework in that slot, then I think it's a little bit of a bait and switch. <laughs> um, it's not a theory, it's a framework. It's a way to have people, you know, choose to ask questions um, framed around a certain uh, emphasis. Uh, so like minimizing surprise or free energy um, in right. Kristen's case. Um, and yeah, those can, you know, maybe that will lead people to organizing their thoughts and asking questions in a productive way. But insofar as you could take almost any result and then spin it as, okay, well, here's how it's minimizing free energy in this circumstance, then it's not it's not committing you to anything strong. It can be molded to fit any kind of finding. And in that way, it can't lead to very precise predictions and uh, all of that. So I, I think science, you know, has descriptions at all of these different levels and they can be useful, but yeah, you just, again, always have to be clear on what you're dealing with at any given time. So, so right. So that, that actually is a nice way of putting it. And so hopefully, right. A, a framework can, you know, once it gets enough traction, once it gets enough, maybe, Right. When you start filling it in with some details, you can it can turn into a, a theory in this regard. But but even so, something as simple as uh, Bayesian processes in the in the brain that it's it's almost hard to come up with a physical um, 
model for, for how a Bayesian process occurs, even though it's so intuitively like, oh, it has to be that way. Uh, it's hard to, it'd be interesting to, I don't know what your, if you have any thoughts on, you know, how, how neurons could, could create that uh, in that regard. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people trying to answer that exact question of like, how do populations of neurons represent and compute with probability distributions is kind of the main difference between the Bayesian approach versus um, like the standard approach where you're not really thinking about probability distributions. You're just thinking about like point estimates, like this, these neurons in this population are just representing this thing and they're not representing the uncertainty around it or anything like that. Um, so people are definitely trying. I mean, a lot of it is sometimes a matter of interpretation. You know, some people take the fact that neurons are noisy and have kind of time varying firing rates, even in response to static stimuli as evidence that maybe they're representing a probability distribution if you look at it the right way and all of that. Um, so I think, yeah, it's out there. Um, some of those predictions, I guess, maybe make uh, some of those kind of ways of thinking about probability distributions in, in neural uh, circuits will make more strong predictions than others and more kind of falsifiable predictions than others. Like to just say neurons are noisy. It's like, yeah, <laughs> we can all agree on that, but you're going to have to say something more specific about the style of noise and its properties over time under different circumstances to make the argument that, you know, it's representing a probability distribution in that um, variability. Um, but yeah, people are definitely trying and that, you know, stems from some of the success that the Bayesian modeling has had at the behavioral level, where it seems like people are doing something Bayesian-like and how they integrate information. Um, and so therefore, neurons have to be implementing that in some way. The flip side is that they're implementing such a heuristic version of it that you won't actually find like probability distributions in the brain. Um, but yeah, that's that's something to be determined experimentally. Um, to sort of circle back slightly to what you had said about framework versus theory versus model, I think that you're right that people often use these things kind of interchangeably, but they mean very different things. And especially sort of when it comes to the issue of sort of like testability or what kind of like how you know do you can you like disprove a framework or something like that. Um, a kind of interesting early example of this uh, issue is if you go back to the early days in the generative grammar tradition in linguistics where Chomsky was sort of proposing this, like, here's a different way of thinking about language as something like an internal mechanism or something like that, or language faculty, is a lot of people resisted that conceptual description as being like, but this language is a sort of like a social construct or it's something like, something like this. And much of the focus was often about, well, look, I mean, this is a way of thinking about things and whether it's a good way about thinking about things will be whether or not it sort of generates new research and new experiments. And so, you know, even if one doesn't agree with even today about sort of that way of thinking about things, I mean, you would could make the case that it's at least been a fruitful way of thinking because of all the sort of progress that's been made in, in linguistics that sort of germinated from that. And so that, that might be a useful litmus test also when it comes to some of these things like, for instance, Bayesian models right now or free energy that we've been talking about or is, um, or deep learning is that um, whether or not it, it sort of is like generating lots of new and interesting sort of research, not because we can't explain those findings in terms of other ways of doing things, but whether or not is it when we take that perspective, it ends up being kind of fruitful, I think is like, uh, is a useful sort of way of thinking about the, how we evaluate frameworks and science. Yeah, because, because they're not making precise predictions, you can't evaluate them on that exactly. I would just be cautious to note that the volume of research is not the same as like yes. the fruitfulness and the <laughs> yeah. usefulness. And I think especially with a vaguer framework, you can get a lot of people talking and feeling like they're making progress mm -hmm. because they're kind of just talking past each other and like words aren't well-defined and they're getting used in any kind of way that people want in any yeah. circumstance. And you can really just go around in circles. So I think it is true that, yeah, a good framework should lead to kind of a blossoming in research, but yeah evaluating whether that like blossoming was good or <laughs> yeah. just a lot of people talking about stuff that no one really made sense of. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's difficult. And probably, you know, it takes some historical perspective to really uh, decide on. Yeah. Uh, that, and that's also where I think that having a clear connection between a framework and sort of generating models within that framework was very useful. Um, very early on to make another slight anecdote about Chomsky uh, when he, he justifies the direction he's going, he he was trying to make, linguistic claims more precise. And he says somewhere something along the lines that if we can, if we don't sort of risk being uh, wrong, we can't hope to be right. So the point is about making the um, uh, frameworks should give uh, introduce a bit of risk uh, and, and allow sort of more precise uh, mathematical characterizations of things. Yeah. 
and people have to be willing to let them go if those <laughs> predictions don't pan out. Just to wrap this whole thing up a little bit, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I, there were so many good quotes in your book, and and one, you know, actually, you attribute to David Marr, and I thought it was perfect, uh, you know, to understand to really, so just to lead to the very last part, just to actually the hope for the future for understanding. It seems like we may be able to explain on three levels: computational, algorithmic, and and implementational. You know, computational, you know, what the system, uh, what the purpose of the system is, algorithmic, uh, as you know through what steps does it achieve it? And then finally implementational, ask what bits of the system, you know, the neurons, the physical parts, what do they do? And I think, right, I think actually to understand the brain, you, you need all three uh, truly, ultimately. Uh, and, and, you know, all of us sort of take our best stab uh, somewhere along the line there to try to sort of align these things. With your research and also with your perspective from this book, what do you think, will be the trend in, in, in computational modeling? What do you think will are the challenges that are maybe low hanging? What do you think is impossible? Um, yeah, I think there is, and I hope there continues to be a trend in tackling the more challenging um, behaviors that we wanna understand at their full scale and, and recognizing that that can almost make modeling easier because of the heavy constraints it puts on it. When you have a very simple toy problem, there are many, many ways you can solve it. When you have the full complexity of the world that you have to deal with, it's presumed that that limits the number of solutions that the brain could have. And so we might actually see kind of an inflection point where if you study things that are difficult enough, we start to reduce the range of models that will work and that can help really get at some principles of, of how the brain could really be doing things. So I think that that's a good trend that, um, that could continue and be very productive um, I don't know. <laughs> so I would say like, ultimately, there shouldn't be anything that's impossible. But some people want things that I think are unrealistic. So maybe there are <laughs> impossible things. Um, you know, I think sometimes people want um, models that kind of jump scales in a certain way. Like if you pose your research question in terms of, I want to understand how people's desires are created by dopamine. It's like, well, you're just jumping scales there in a way that, you know, isn't going to work. There's a lot of stuff in between there that you're not going to get uh, dopamine does this and therefore you desire that kind of thing. Uh, there are going to be some things that are impossible in terms of people wanting a, a simpler explanation uh, or a faster explanation than um, what the brain can actually, you know, be understood through. Um, but for the most part, I, yeah, it's, you know, some people think like, oh, certain things about intelligence or emotions, like you can't model. Um, and I think that that's just kind of a, a weird, almost dualist bias of, uh, you know, people thinking that certain elements of their human experience aren't the result of neurons doing computations, but I think everything is. So you should be able to build a, a model of the brain that can tackle any of those kind of big questions that people are interested in neuroscience and psychology and all that. And that, and that sort of made me think of two things. One is uh, I just also finished re reading a nice book called by Mark Solms on Hidden Spring on uh, about his mechanism of uh, his theory of, of consciousness in itself. I mean, that's sort of like a big thing, but but it's actually interesting. I mean, he tries to actually have this more of a subcortical, you know, process of, of you know, that's lead related to actual feelings, but it's actually, I mean, right now it's still just words, but it would be, it's really, I would really interesting, interested to see someday, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll be able to model on a, on a network level and explain, you know, subjective experience potentially. And um, what that means. I mean, it's, it's also coming up with that sort of semantic, you know, with what that even means. Um, yeah. But, I think that might be the bigger challenge. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, exactly. And but also, we didn't even talk anything about this, but, uh, you know, all of us are sort of motivated in some sense by the fact that we just want to understand the brain. But there's a flip side to this, and that's, you know, helping people in clinical applications. And I, you know, I think a lot of people feel we're sort of in, in the dark ages in terms of, you know, we don't, we're just trying stuff, you know, drug mechanisms, whatever. Uh, and, and I think that, and, and now, you know, people are doing network uh, neuromodulation and and maybe as a as a one of your the last questions sort of what what's your thought and how this might have traction in terms of clinical uh, applications potentially? Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, any any kind of increase in understanding of how the brain work has has the potential to um, help us treat uh, disorders of the brain. Um, but actually, ironically, sometimes 
uh, you can kind of get the treatment without the understanding, you know, and that's what a lot of clinical work is trying to do. It's like, oh, we have a hunch about how this works. So we're going to try to give this drug. And if it helps, then, you know, it'll be for scientists down the line to figure out why it helps. (laughs) And so that's fine. And you don't, and there, then we actually get back kind of to the start of our discussion about descriptive versus mechanistic models. Then you can get yourself a descriptive model of, I give this dosage and this is the outcome. And, you know, maybe if I give too much, the outcomes get bad again. And you get this descriptive model of how the treatment impacts the disease, but you don't have a mechanistic model of, of how, and yeah, for clinical reasons, you know, like for clinical uses, uh, that can be fine. As long as you understand the descriptive model well enough to not harm people when you give them the treatment, um, you don't need the mechanistic model. The mechanistic model might make it in the future such that you can get drugs that have fewer side effects because you understand the full system better and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's obviously there's still room for modeling just because you're dealing with a bunch of data and you're trying to understand a complex system, but it can be a very different type of modeling, I think. Right. Plan to write any follow-up books to this? Uh... Um, Yeah, I have thought about topics for future books, and I do think I've gained some understanding of how to plan a book and uh, what topics have enough, you know, meat to them to to make a book. So that's good. Um, But it would be very different because, you know, I've kind of, I've exhausted my knowledge of my field. And so I think any second book I would write, it would be a little bit more like a standard kind of science writing exercise where you're a bit of an outsider trying to understand uh, the science of an area and presenting it. So it, it would be quite different. I think um, if I were to write a, a second book, it would be on, it would at least include topics that are farther from um, my own personal experience. Um, so yeah, it, it could end up being uh, either easier because then you're not bogged down by all the details and all the objections of the people in your field <laughs> that you're oversimplifying or whatever it is, um, but also more challenging because you have to try to understand a, a whole new uh, topic area. So yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, when exactly that would happen or what it would be about in particular. I hope you do continue because, uh, yeah, I think you're a wonderful writer and, and, uh, yeah, I think it's helping a lot. You know, the impact is, is huge in, in that regard. I think it inspires people and informs people and pushes thank the you. field along. So, all right. Well, well, thank you very much. This has been a great discussion and, uh, hopefully more people will, will pick up your book and, uh, you know, just, I, I, it's something I'll have as a reference now. Um, uh, and we're just finishing up our journal club, uh, our book club as well. And, and thanks to Brendan also for, for co-hosting. And I, I wish you the very best. Thank you. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Ekaterina Dobrikova and Niels Mulert 